please turn to John chapter 1, verse 1. Today we're going to begin our study in the Gospel of John. Why four Gospels anyway? What do we need them for? We could have just had one big one. John said in the end of the Gospel of John that he supposed, though, if everything that Jesus did was written down, there wouldn't be enough ink and, and parchment in the Greco-Roman world to do it. I guess I'm grateful that we don't have like a 70-volume set of the precise life of Christ that gives everything. Can you imagine carrying that to church? Or handing out New Testaments. You know, the Gideons would be severely uh, hampered by that. They have to give out 70 volumes. Why four Gospels? Dr. Henry Van Dyke, a Presbyterian minister and a professor of English literature at Princeton, once said this, If four witnesses should appear before a judge to give an account of a certain event, and each should tell exactly the same story in the same words, the judge would probably conclude not that their testimony was exceptionally valuable, but that the only event which was certain beyond a doubt was that they had all agreed to tell the same story. But if each man had told what he had seen, as he had seen it, then the evidence would be credible. And when we read the four Gospels, is this not exactly what we find? The four men tell the same story, but each in his own way. They all have a slightly different emphasis. Matthew's Gospel is the most Jewish of the Gospels. It's full of Old Testament quotations. Matthew wants to show you that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Israel. And he does it very well. Mark, on the other hand, is a devotee of the Romans saying, Acta non verba. Give me actions, not words. Uh, His approach is very much focused to the Roman practical mindset. And he's a a gospel full of Jesus' doings. And he's full of energy because his favorite word is immediately. And immediately this happened, and immediately that happened. It just bang, 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 bang. You know, Mark is one is like an action movie that grabs you from the first second and doesn't let you go until the credits. You know, that's how Mark is. Luke. Luke had a Greek mindset. Luke was a doctor. Luke was a Hellenistic Jew, I believe. Some say he's a Gentile. I'm not buying that. Um, but... He was a Hellenistic Jew. He understood Greek culture and he understood um, precision because of his his medical profession. And when when Luke looks at Jesus, he presents him as the perfect man, which is certainly true. Christ is fully man and fully God. But balancing that out, God had John put the the capstone on the whole arch with his gospel, which clearly presents... Jesus as God, as God become flesh. So the whole orb picture is necessary. None of them contradict each other, but they all come at it from little different directions. Now, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, evidently knew of each other's sources and knew of each other's works because there's a lot of similarity between them. And we could get into all manner of scholarly discussions about which came first and that sort of thing. It really isn't, I think, terribly important. They could all have similarities because they had the same class notes sitting in front of Jesus listening to him teach. Uh, That's entirely possible. Uh, When a rabbi taught, his students would repeat what was called his mishnah. uh, And that means repetition. They would repeat his sayings and memorize them. It was a much more verbal culture. So it's entirely possible that that's the reason for the similarities. John shows a lot of new material, a lot of different material. 
And it focuses more on what happens in Judea than it does what happens in Galilee, though Galilee's not left out. Now, the first question we bump into in John is that of authorship. See, the problem is, John doesn't refer to himself by name in his gospel. He's a humble guy. And that causes us some problems, similar to what we encountered with the book of Hebrews. Who's the author? Now, that has caused some people of a skeptical mindset to question John's gospel's authorship. There's basically two lines of evidence when you, are, when you ever examine this sort of thing. One is the internal evidence. What can you derive from looking at the document itself? And the other is the external evidence. What do contemporaries say about it? Well, the internal evidence tells us, one, the author is Jewish. His Greek betrays a Hebrew style. There are little Hebraisms, if you will, uh, in the way he writes Greek. He shows a familiarity with and provides translations for Aramaic terms. So that tells you that he's familiar with Aramaic. His audience isn't. Okay. He's familiar with Jewish customs, ideas, institutions. He knows that it would be unusual for a rabbi to be talking to a woman by herself, as in the woman at the well. Um, He knows that they had jars full of water for purification and how big they are. He goes into all those details that somebody who wasn't a native wouldn't know. Now, he does use a phrase, the Jews. Did you ever notice that when reading John's Gospel? The Jews did this, or the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Some have said, well, how can he be Jewish if he writes about the Jews like they're somebody else? It makes all the sense in the world if you realize that he's writing for a foreign Gentile audience. So if I were writing for the French and said, last year at the time of the American Independence Day, well, that I said American Independence Day and not just Independence Day, does that mean that an American couldn't have written that? No, it means I'm writing for a foreign audience. I have to explain to them you know, what I'm talking about. The author is also a native Israeli. We can tell this because he shows intimate knowledge of the geography of Israel. He knows places. He knows distances. Um, he's familiar with the details of the temple. He even knows what side of the temple people tended to congregate on during cold weather. Yeah, so it shows a great deal of, of knowledge. And he uses significantly a translation other than the Septuagint Greek translation. See, the Jews that were scattered abroad uh, in the Greco-Roman world used pretty much universally the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They were Greek-speaking, hence Hellenistic Jews. Whereas those who lived in Israel were native speakers of Aramaic and in their scripture readings would read from Hebrew. Okay, Um, In John's Gospel, interestingly enough, he he differs frequently from the Septuagint and his differences are in line with the Hebrew, not with the Greek translation. So he's translating from Hebrew into Greek for himself in writing the Gospel rather than quoting. The Apostle Paul usually quoted so that was, that's a difference between them. So, he's Jewish, he's a native Israeli, he's also an eyewitness. Now, he claimed that for himself, 
that obviously is not the conclusive reasoning for that, this, but if somebody didn't claim it for themselves, then you wouldn't think they were an eyewitness if they said, well, I'm not. For instance, Luke said, well, I interviewed people. Okay? Luke wasn't an eyewitness. He was an eyewitness to Acts, but not to the Gospels. But he said, I carefully ascertained the facts from talking to people. So, John says, or the author says, we saw his glory. John 1.14. John 19.35, he says, And he who has seen this has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may also believe. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know his testimony is true, John 21.24. But in addition to that claim, the author gives us all kinds of small detail concerning times, what time of day it was when Jesus was sitting at the well in, uh, in Samaria. That was totally unnecessary. But somebody who had actually been there would have that kind of knowledge. You know, say, oh yeah, it was about 3 o'clock or 2 o'clock, that sort of thing. Well, that's not the sort of thing you'd say if you were making this up. Because then you expose yourself to the possibility of contradiction. He has detail about times, names, and numbers. Items, you know, where he can tell you exactly how many of this was involved, that sort of thing. All that small detail is natural for an eyewitness and not natural for somebody making up the story. So we know that he's an eyewitness and his account is valid for that reason. And then finally, the author's the Apostle John, according to the internal evidence. The author was identified in John 21.20 as the one who leaned on Jesus' breast at the supper and said, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? Matthew informed us that at the Last Supper, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. So that narrows the scope that the beloved disciple has to be one of the twelve. I actually ran into a fellow at a conference one time who was very excited about his his, uh, idea that Lazarus was the beloved disciple who wrote this gospel. I don't know where he got that, because Lazarus was not one of the twelve, and whoever the beloved disciple was at the Last Supper, leaning on Jesus' chest, it had to be one of the twelve, according to this. Reclining on someone's chest at supper was a position of honor. That's the one you wanted to honor, you gave them that position. Now John is one of the inner circle. Repeatedly in, in the Gospels we see Peter, James, and John. You see that in Matthew 4, 17, Mark 1, Mark 5, Mark 9, uh, Mark 13 and 14. And Luke records that Jesus sent Peter and John to prepare for the meal. So they were all you know, in, in a position of honor and importance there at this Last Supper. Along with Peter and James, John witnessed the transfiguration. And the comment that we saw his glory in John 1.14 is a likely reference to that event. The author was at the empty tomb with Peter, according to John 20. He's also identified as living to an advanced old age. In John 21, it says, Therefore the saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? And we know that John lived to an advanced old age. So when you do the comparisons, there really isn't any other candidate. Um, Peter is not associated with this gospel internally. Uh, there are, 
you know, and he is named by name. James was martyred too soon to be the author of this gospel, which appears last on the scene. And that really only leaves John, the apostle. So though he's a humble guy and didn't put his name in the work, the disciple that Jesus loved is John, the apostle. Now the external evidence. I could multiply quotes, but in the interest of time I won't. Suffice it to say, the early church fathers acknowledged this gospel as the work of the Apostle John. There's not any other candidate put forward. So it's unanimous. Also, if we had any doubt about that, even those who don't talk about, even the early church fathers who don't explicitly talk about John being the author of the gospel, quote from it. So they show that it was in circulation at a very early time. Surprising to me, from an apologetic standpoint, how frequently that is overlooked, that quotes from early church fathers uh, as proof that something was out there in the, in the world being read. The um, fact is, according, according to Josh McDowell, uh, it's something like 17 or 18 verses is all you couldn't reproduce of the New Testament from the early church fathers. So if every New Testament were burned tomorrow, we could take the early church fathers and reproduce it, all but about 18 verses. Yeah, so it's pretty amazing. Now, who is John? Well, he was the son of Zebedee, a successful fisherman. He was a friend of Peter, brother of James. Initially, he may have been a follower of John the Baptist. There's an unnamed disciple that follows Jesus, we'll see, and when he... Yeah, uh, who was a, a follower of John the Baptist. So John's interest in John the Baptist that we'll see may come from the fact that he was originally a follower of the Baptist. He, along with James and Peter, was especially close to Jesus. He was a passionate individual. Jesus referred to him and his brother as sons of thunder. Somehow I get this... Um, mental picture I, I used to have anyway of, of John being a sort of gentle individual going now now let's love one another but that's not who John was when the Samaritans didn't re- receive Jesus on one occasion John wanted to call down fire from heaven on him that's when Jesus named him son of thunder yeah that this is a this is a passionate person this is a this is a person of strong convictions Jesus entrusted the care of his mother Mary to John at the cross. So, again, how close they must have been. Now, he he doesn't have prominence in Acts past the very first part. He kind of fades out after after chapter 8. But tradition indicates that he moved with Mary to Ephesus. Matter of fact, Mr. Pilkington, who visited Ephesus last year in Turkey, uh, told me that they, the tour guides will take you to a house and swear that was where John and Mary lived. <laughs> I don't know about that house, <laughs> but uh, it's probably good for tourism. Uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, it's reasonable since Jesus entrusted Mary to his care, and at some point John leaves Jerusalem and goes to Ephesus. We know he endured exile on the island of Patmos because of Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, that uh, he had spent time uh, in exile. And we know that he came back from that and lived to a ripe old age. Wrote Revelation, three letters in addition to this gospel. Now, when did he write this? Scholarly consensus lies around AD 85. 
Um, what's most significant about that is, is liberal skeptics used to, used to try to claim that the Gospel of John was written sometime in the 2nd century by somebody else other than John. And uh, in, the, in the face of all the church history that, that indicated that, no, John was the author from people that, in fact, knew John. But that was kind of killed by a, a piece of papyrus that was discovered in Egypt. And it dates from AD 135, and it's a, a fragment of the Gospel of John. Now, the interesting thing about showing up in Egypt in 135, they didn't have Xerox and facsimile machines. They didn't have UPS and FedEx. So if you wanted a copy of a book, they'd say, fine, go ahead and make yourself one. And you would set and write it out, well, which you can imagine would be a rather slow process. So things would be disseminated, but slowly that way. Well, John's Gospel was written in Ephesus in Turkey, and it shows up in Alexandria and Egypt. So it's, that tells me that it must have been around for quite a while. You know, instead of just showing up on the scene about the time this papyrus is, it would have had to have been around for decades in order to circulate everywhere because things moved a lot slower. Now, Circumstances, then, is written from Ephesus. Ephesus is a major city, has one of the largest temples in the Greco-Roman world. And it, it had quite a bit of ministry there, everybody from Paul, Timothy, on down to John. And Mary, if you want to include her. Quite a testimony there. The reigning emperor at the time would have been either Titus or Domitian. Um, probably Domitian, and Domitian was uh, one of the crazier uh, Roman emperors, thought himself to be a god. They always deified Roman emperors when they died, but this guy thought he was a god while he was still alive and uh, you know, unleashed a lot of persecution because of that. He may have been the one who sent John to Patmos, most likely. The interesting thing about this gospel, though, is its purpose and theme. And they give us a very clear hint. And I want you to hold your finger back here at the first, but turn over to chapter 20. And I want you to read this, because this is very significant. Chapter 20, verse 31. Now, there's two ways you can approach telling people why you're writing something. You can say it right up front. And that would be the way we would tend to in our, in our world today. But in the Greco-Roman world, sometimes they like to make their case and then tell you at the end what they were about. And that's what we've got here. Uh, starting with verse 30, to give a little context, John writes, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that, there's our purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So what's the theme? What's the purpose to this gospel? To bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Now all the... I'm not saying there's any book in the New Testament who doesn't want people to believe in Jesus Christ. But what I am saying is, John explicitly wrote to that purpose. He wrote so that people would come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Greek words for believe, faith, etc. are used 98 times in John's Gospel. 
This is the only explicitly evangelistic gospel of all of them. They all had points to make. They all wanted you to believe in Jesus. But this one explicitly, I'm writing this so that you'll believe. That's my purpose. And that kind of sets it all above everything else. The structure of John's Gospel divides pretty neatly um, into a prologue, which is where we will be today. Uh, John 1, 1 through 18. And then early testimonies of Jesus Christ, still in chapter 1. And then it moves into the public ministry of God the Son. What did Jesus do in public? And as I said before, the landscape tends to bounce between Galilee and Jerusalem with a lot more emphasis on Jerusalem than most of the other Gospels. And then at chapter 12, we have what's kind of called the Great Pause because John in verse 36 talks about Jesus went and hid himself from the crowds. And the next thing he has is a few verses quoting Jesus and quoting the prophets about belief versus unbelief. And then the scene shifts from public ministry to private ministry. From the crowds to the disciples. And it's quite a, it's quite a marked change. And that's where we, we, hit, uh, we hit that then in chapter 13 through 17. There are several discourses um, that, where Jesus is talking directly to the disciples, uh, not to the crowds anymore. And then in, uh, with chapter 18, of course, we have in 18 and 19, we have the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the crucifixion, followed by the resurrection uh, in chapter 20. And then just like we had a prologue, we have an epilogue in chapter 21. And that's the structure of John's Gospel. So with that background, let's um, turn to chapter 1. I confess I had to label this part 1. I was going to try to make it all the way through verse 18 and um, realized about 2 o'clock in the morning that if I did that, first of all, I would have no sleep and uh, that wouldn't be a good thing. But also that we'd probably be here until about 5 o'clock this afternoon at the rate things were going. So... I didn't think I wanted to do that. <laughs> so, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we're going to be focusing on these first five verses, first paragraph of this prologue. Why, why is John using this strange term, Word? Or in Greek, Logos. Well, if you went to the University of Texas, it's Logos. If you went to Dallas Seminary, it's Logos. Don't ask me why. Uh, (laughs) But in the beginning was the Logos. What is that? Well, actually, that word itself points to Jesus' deity. Um, It also points to John trying to kind of bridge across cultures here. The Greek philosophers used that word Logos to refer to the principle that maintains order in the cosmos. Okay. On the other hand, from the Jewish side, in the Aramaic paraphrases of the Old Testament, they used the phrase, word of the Lord, in place of God. And so you have, in, especially in the creation accounts, and the word of the Lord said, which is kind of an interesting usage. Um, 
So you have the word of the Lord on one hand, and you have the word that controls the cosmos on the other. You have Hellenistic Jewish philosophers like Philo tried to use word to refer to God in expression or the expression of God. So he was trying to bridge the gap with that too. But John, I think, was led by the Spirit to reach the Greeks in Ephesus, and he used the term to bridge the cultures, that this is actually more than just God speaking. This is the very expression of God. Kind of more in lines with Philo. Um, You do have an interesting passage in Psalm 33.6 that kind of ties those together too. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Okay, and as we'll see later, the the word is the creator. Well, the word of the Lord is what made the heavens, according to Psalm 33, 6. Interestingly enough, in the Septuagint translation, the word for word there is logos. So by the logos of of the Lord the heavens were made. Yeah. So there was an idea there that they could tie into to try to get across what he was talking about. So, in the beginning was the Word. Now, this presents the Word as being eternal. The beginning refers to what? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I'm interested on a layman's term, uh, level with physics, um, kind of dabbling us a little bit. But those of us who follow physics, there's, there used to be a theory that the universe was eternal. It's called steady state. Um, Fred Hoyle was the major proponent of that. But now that's gone in the dustbin of history, pretty much. And uh, the theory now is that the universe had a beginning at the so-called Big Bang. Now, the odd thing about that is believers always knew that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say in the beginning everything was already there and was already eternal, does it? No, God created it. Okay, so we already knew that. And if you create everything, that's kind of like a Big Bang, you know. But best of all, we know who made it go bang. (laughs) Okay, it didn't just go bang. We know who made it go bang. But the interesting thing in this, though, is in the beginning was the word. I want to call your attention to that little Greek verb. Because it's in the Greek imperfect tense. Now that means continuous action in the past. Not a snapshot action in the past, not an action in the past that continues to the present, but an action that was ongoing in the past. What does it mean to say that when everything began, the word was already there. Is what he's, you know, what does that mean? That means he's eternal. See, the Jehovah's Witness, which I'll have more to say about them, um, want to tell you that Jesus was an intermediate creator, that God created this archangel and, that, and Michael, and then that, um, that he actually you know, did creation from there. But that doesn't work, because... Then when the beginning happened, that would have been at the point that that angel was created. 
But it says at the, when the beginning happened, the word already was. It was already going, you know, already there before anything existed. Matter of fact, from the standpoint of physics, since time is measured by matter moving through space, you don't even have time outside of that before that event. So there's simply before there was time, the word was already there. Some of the translations are, are really great. In the beginning, the word was existing. Kenneth Weiss translates it. In the beginning, the word already existed. Um, Paul wrote that Jesus Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things. Only God is eternal. That's one of those attributes that's not communicable. Only God is eternal and, and outside of time. So God, John now moves on to present the relationship the Word had with the Father. Because the next phrase is, and the Word was with God. Now that doesn't sound too astounding. Um, but there's actually more meaning to this than at first glance you would see. First of all, that little verb was, again, another imperfect tense. The Word had a past continuous relationship there. Okay, It was always going on in the past. The preposition translated with has the meaning of show uh, a close relationship to a person. He was with God. And the God in the uh, Greek has the article here, so it's with the God. In other words, God the Father. So Weiss translates this, and the word was in fellowship with God the Father. Another translation was the word was in relationship with God. That's the Bible in basic English. Now remember I spoke last week about modalism and the idea that there's not really one what and three who's, uh, but there's really just one personality displayed three ways. You know, that sometimes Jesus is wearing his father hat and sometimes his son hat and sometimes his Holy Spirit hat. Well, that doesn't work here, does it? How are you in relationship with yourself? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. So, when he says that the Word was with God the Father, then he's saying that there's a relationship going on. There's at least two who's. Now, we know there's a third one, too, from the Holy Spirit, but in this particular context, it only talks about the second who. But that relationship, then, is contrary to modalism. It shows exactly the kind of distinction between persons we'd expect to see with the Trinity. Surprise. So before time began, the Word was fellowshipping with the Father. What were they doing in eternity? They were loving each other. They were fellowshipping together. It's at this point, though, that John rivets our attention. Because he, he steps in and declares the Word to be God. And this had to jump off the page for everybody. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Literally, the Greek is, and God was the Word. And that caused some controversy because there's no article before God. Okay, And leaving off an article in Greek um, can indicate a couple of things. It can indicate that the Word is indefinite. Like, a pulpit. You know, if I just say pulpit, I could be saying a pulpit. Okay? Or if I just say God, theoretically, I could be saying a God. Now, I say theoretically because 
Imagine how bad that sounded Jewish ears. You know, I can I can see them going heresy, rending their robes. You know, a god. But also imagine how misleading that would be to Greeks and Romans who believed in a in a whole pantheon of gods who behaved rather badly, I might add. But anyway, they they would be misled by that too. So that can't you know that's highly unlikely to be what he was meaning. But besides being indefinite, it also has a very frequent usage, meaning uh, referring to the qualities. So if I leave out the article, I could be saying divine, deity. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. This gets a little complicated. But the Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, want to translate this as a god. And that's what they do in their New World Translation. Uh, they hope by that to connect to the Old Testament usage of God in the, in the, that the Septuagint translated angels in Psalm 8. Now I've got to point out, this is rare in the Old Testament too. To use Elohim to refer to angels, it's, some have even argued it doesn't legitimately exist. But since the Septuagint translated it that way and Hebrews cited it that way, I'm not prepared to argue that. I'm just saying it's not a common usage even in the Old Testament. But they're trying to make that equation so that they can call Jesus an incarnation of the angel Michael. However, they're inconsistent in their own translation. Let me mention why. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 has the Greek word for God eight times. Only two of those have articles. Okay? The... The New World Translation translates them six times as God, one time as the God, and only once as a God. So they're not consistent with their, own trans- with their own principle there. They should have most of those as a God, if they meant that. That inconsistency, I think, betrays their theological bias against the Trinity and the reason why they took that translation. Now, there are four good reasons for not translating this, and the word was a God, in terms of Greek grammar. First, it's been pointed out that God is often a proper name, and proper names don't require articles, especially in the predicate. Which, this is the predicate part of the sentence. The subject would be word, the predicate would be God. Okay? So the word was God. Um, so, proper names, you don't have to say the Medki, though I often do. Uh, <laughs> and you can see, and Greek is kind of peculiar there, you'll see proper names with or without articles. Sometimes you'll see uh, ho Jesus, the Jesus. That just means the same thing as Jesus. I don't know why they do that, and I've never seen a good explanation why they do. But it's not necessary to have that article if it's a proper name. Secondly, God's a predicate nominative in the sentence. And I, I've got to talk a little English grammar here. Forgive me, I know high school is a long ways away. But predicate nominatives are nouns in the predicate part of the sentence that tell you something about the, the subject, right? So if I said, I am a preacher, okay, preacher is a noun in the predicate part of the sentence, tells you something about me, the subject of the sentence, okay? So if you say the word was God, well, God is the predicate, and it's a a noun, so it's nominative, and it tells you something about the word, right? So it's referring back to that. (coughs) Well, it's real common for predicate nominatives to not have an article. A matter of fact, that's the way you usually tell what's the subject and what's the predicate nominative. The subject has an article, the predicate nominative doesn't in Greek grammar. 
Okay, I'm probably making everybody's eyes glaze over, but that's what I'm getting at is grammatically there's several good reasons why it doesn't have an article. If the predicate nominative had an article, then that would do something kind of odd to our sentence. If, we, if John had written, the God was the word, first of all, we'd have trouble figuring out who's the subject of the sentence. Which, which is it? Is it God or is it word? We don't know. But it also means something else grammatical. That means they're interchangeable. Okay? So you can flip that sentence either way. It can be God was the word, the word was God. Okay? Now, that would not be establishing Trinitarianism. That would be establishing modalism again. Because that would be saying there's a one-to-one correspondence there. God the Father and Jesus are the same person. They're interchangeable. But that's not what John's trying to say. He said the word had a relationship with God, and the word was God. <coughs> Which leads me to the fourth reason. Hang on for just a second, and then I promise no more grammar. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, the, the, next, the fourth reason is, a, is from the research of a fellow named Caldwell. Uh, Ernst Cadman Caldwell lived from 1901 to 1974. And he wrote a paper in 1933 that a predicate nominative without an article that comes before the verb can still be definite. Okay? That you'd have to tell from the context. Now, other scholars have modified his rule and noted the likely uh, possibilities, whether it's qualitative or whether it's definite or whether it's indefinite. But the way it works out is if that predicate nominative comes before the verb, there is no way that it's indefinite. Okay? In other words, according to Caldwell's rule and subsequent researches, there is no way in Greek that a Greek speaker of that age would have heard that as being a god. Would not have flown. Okay? What would have been the range of possibilities is either it's definite or it's qualitative. Now, the interesting thing that they've come up with is that if you examine Greek literature 80% of the time, the vast majority of the time, it's qualitative if that construction exists. So it wouldn't be translated... Um, I'm sorry, let me give it back up and give you a very good concrete example. Down in verse 14, it's got the same sort of construction when it says, and the word became flesh. Flesh is first, before the verb. And would you translate that, the word became a flesh? That'd be silly. What would that mean? But it would make sense if you translated it, the word took on the quality of humanity, took on flesh. Right? Makes sense as a quality. Okay? So, in this situation then, 80% of the time, the vast majority of the time, the, the way that you would understand that sentence is the word was divine. The word was fully God. And that's what we would exactly expect from the standpoint of the Trinity, isn't it? If he was the same as God the Father, that denies the Trinity one way. Okay? If he's merely a God of some sort of lesser deity or angel, that denies the Trinity another way. John stated it precisely the way he had to. To say that he was fully God without confusing the person of God the Father and God the Son. He could not have said it more precisely. Matter of fact, if a God is what was meant there, then there's no other such instance in John's Gospel. 
no nothing else that ever sounds ever works like that. Okay, so for that reason, translating that as the word was a god is is wrong-headed, <laughs> absolutely. Now I, I appreciate your indulgence on that because that was rather technical, but that's the reason why when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, you know, don't give them an inch on that one. They are wrong for four good reasons of Greek grammar. So. The point is, John's been telling us that the Word has always had the quality of deity. The nature of the Word was the same as the nature of God, Barclay translates it. I like that one. The Word was fully God, the New English translation. The Word was as to his essence, absolute deity, Kenneth Wiest. And the New English Bible, what God was, the Word was. Are all all good translations of that. So John is reinforcing what we already knew from the doctrine of the Trinity, that there are three persons, but only one essence. Three who's and only one what. Okay? The essential nature of the word is nothing less than total deity. Now John goes ahead then in verse 2 and restates he was in the beginning with God. Why does he do that? He wants to be sure we don't confound the persons. He has made such a strong statement of, of the word's deity that he wants to go back and say, and they were in fellowship with each other, but there are two persons. And he wants to reiterate that. The was here, again, Greek in perfect tense, is past continuous action. He was already with God in the beginning, the God's word translation says. The word is also, in verse 3, the creator. All things came to being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John sounds a little funny to us because he states things oftentimes both positively and negatively. He starts out and he says, both positively, all things came into being through him. All things. So, is Jesus a creative thing? No, because that would be a conflict with the all things. That would be all things minus one. But that isn't what he says. All things came through him. All the angels, all the worlds, all the universe. And negatively he states it. Apart from him, nothing came into being. Not one little thing that has come into being. So he's the creator of everything, including angels. The word's the agent of creation. So he can't be a created being. Now John's already told us the word was before time. So he's already nailed that down that way. But now he's telling us that the word is not a created being, but instead the word is the creator. Again, the word is God. The word, John goes on to tell us, is the source of life and light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In Genesis, God said, let there be light. And this is not just physical life. That would be the Greek word bios. We get biology from that. Uh, but this is higher life. Zoe means you know, more abundant life. What Jesus say of himself? said, I am the way, the truth and the life. You know, grammatically, light of men means the men are enlightened, by the way. Not that they own the light, but they've been enlightened by the light. 
And that higher life that the word possesses is what enlightens men. Now, when we look at darkness here, I think he means that morally. We have a darkened world. Why is the world dark? Because it's rejected God's light. Not because the light's not there. He said that light is, enlightens all the men, all the people. But rather that it's rejected light and therefore darkened for that reason. Now, I, I have to take issue with my beloved New American Standard here because comprehended is actually better translated as overcome. That's the English Standard Version and the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Uh, translated that way, the darkness has not overcome it, okay, or mastered it as the NET has. So the darkness wants to put out the light, but it's unable. Okay, the light's still shining. It's kind of like imagining a very, very dark room with one little candle shining. Yeah, but you can't put out that candle. That candle is... is Invincible. Now, what does John want us to know about this? I think he wants us to know about the one whose story he's about to tell. This is the prologue to the gospel. He's going to be telling us about Jesus with a view toward leading us to believe in him. But he wants us to know that the eternal word, God the Son, has always had all of the essential qualities of deity. He wants us to know that he's the creator of all. He wants us to know that he's the source of life and light. He wants us to know so that we'll know who we're really dealing with here. It's not just that he was some heroic figure in beard and sandals tromping through Galilee. Not just that, though certainly that, but also that he was God. And as we'll see later, when we get down to verse 14, and then the Word, of whom all this is true, became flesh and lived among us. That's the impact John wants to have, wants this to have on us. Kind of like Micah said, prophesying of the Messiah, when he prophesied that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, but he also said his goings forth were from days of old, from eternity. That's who we're dealing with the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with worship, that you'd help us to grasp that veiled in the human flesh of Jesus was absolute deity. That you invaded our world. And though you laid aside your privileges, you laid aside none of your attributes. May we have appropriate reverence and awe for who you are, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.